Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are through going through Revelation, and today we hit one of the controversial passages. It's, there's definitely thoughts and ideas on uh, what this is, but we're going to be in chapter 7 and talking about the 144,000 and the great multitude. It's funny because we always, the, the yeah, controversy yeah. is the 144,000, but it's like, no, there's two groups of people. There's a great yeah, right, multitude right, right. as well. Who are they? Right, right. Uh, right, right. So yeah, this will be a fun one. Uh, any, any kind of overview or how do we want to, what do we want to do to jump into this one? Well, uh, let's look at the text here in just a second. Let's read it. But it's, it's interesting that you say controversial passages, because in the scholarly world, there's really no controversy here mm-hmm. at all. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward what, what's going on there. To begin with, I'd simply say that to understand the 144,000 and the great multitude, it's really critical to recognize the role that Revelation chapter 7 is playing in the narrative. And I was, where does this fit in the storyline and what's happening? So chapter 7 in one sense, it's going to offer us an immediate response to the question of the, of the wicked or the, the, the non-people of God at the end of chapter 6. At the end of chapter 6, verse 17, it says, The great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? And so in one sense, chapter 7 is going to answer that. We're going to have four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. We're going to have a great multitude standing. And so we're going to have these groups of people standing uh, before the throne. And so there's one sense, that's the context. But ultimately, as I noted last time, Revelation chapter 7 is an interlude, and what that means is that it's a pause. So chapter 6 introduced us to the first six of the seven seals, and then chapter 8, verse 1, is going to bring us to the seventh seal. So here in chapter 7, we have what we call an interlude or a pause in the middle. In this interlude, John is describing or depicting the people of God, and he's describing the people of God in the midst of the seven seals. And the same thing is going to happen, by the way, in chapter 10, where in the middle of the seven trumpets— After the sixth one and before the seventh, there's going to be another interlude. And again, John's going to describe the the people of God. So I think that's the first thing to to recognize. Now, it appears as though we have two different groups. That's what we're going to talk about. The 144,000 are described as being from all the 12 tribes and the great multitude are from all nations. But maybe the best thing to do right now is actually stop and let's read the text. Uh, Revelation chapter 7. So if you're driving a car, you're mowing your lawn or doing something outside or whatever, that's, that's fine. But if you're able to open up the text... And read along with us as we go, Revelation chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 17. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Starting at verse four, it, it will go and it will list this huge list. We'll just, we'll, instead of saying 12,000 from each tribe, we'll just say the tribes. Okay. Uh, so you have, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed from the dry, tribe of Reuben, Gad, Asher, uh, Nephtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin were sealed. All right. So the first group that we have here is 144,000. It appears from the text, right, that they're from the tribes of Israel. And John hears this group. Now he's going to turn and see a great multitude. So let's look at verses 7. Uh, I'm sorry. Look at verses 10 through 17. 9 through 17. Okay, let's read verses 9 through 17. 
<laughs> After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Mm -hmm. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robe and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in their midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Mm, amen. So, yeah, so in our last session, we talked about how this interlude or this pause, it appears to go back in time to before even the first seal was broken, right? Yes. Yeah, I think that's the first thing that we need to recognize is the fact that what we discussed with the seven seals or the first six seals is that the effects of the seven seals or the first four in particular are impacting all peoples, but especially God's people, the people of God. And so what John's doing now is saying, well, hey, I want you to understand as bad as it's going to be, because remember the fifth seal, the, the people of God go, how long, oh Lord, how long right? are we going to have to endure this? And then so, well, a little while longer, just hang in there a little while longer. So now what you have in chapter seven is going, well, let me also remind you that you've been sealed by God and you've been protected and you're divine so that you can endure the what's, what's called the tribulation. We'll bring that topic back up uh, in a little bit. But notice, and I mentioned this last time, that it says the four angels are standing. Again, that's a response to who can stand at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Now, what's interesting is the fact that go to chapter 20 for a second. Now, Revelation 20. Verse 8, Revelation 20, verse 8, this is the only other occasion in which the four corners of the earth are mentioned. And so let me read verses 7 and 8, Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So the only other instance of the four corners of the earth is Revelation 20, and it's describing what we might call the war of Armageddon, which We'll discuss, obviously, as we get uh, further along in our study, but putting it simply now, Armageddon is the battle that Satan wages against Christ and against God's people and has been waging since really the beginning of time, but in particular, since the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Armageddon is the battle that God's people face now. And we see the four corners of the earth referenced in this battle. And now we go to Revelation chapter 7. And the four angels are standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Well, it seems then to make the most sense that the four winds of the earth are the four horsemen of the first four seals, the ones who bring the destruction of deception and warfare and famine and pestilence and death. And so the idea is, we'll hold them back. So as we've gone back to prior to the unleashing of the four horsemen to say, let me remind you that you guys are being sealed and being protected. You'd mentioned the seal of God uh, just right now. Uh, and then I remember last week you talked about how the seal of God is actually the person of the Holy Spirit. Can you right. remind us of why you think that is? Yeah. And again, this isn't absolute, but I, I know, I don't know of a whole lot of scholars that are going to disagree with it, 
the answer becomes, you know, well, what is the seal of God? Well, it seems that whatever it is, it's God's divine protection upon them. It may, we may find a basis in Ezekiel chapter nine that I think we alluded to last time, you know, Mark, the people of God who are being, who are being protected, but we have two references to the ref, to the seal of God. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse 22. And it says, I'm actually going to read verses 21 and 22. It's just a little bit easier. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us as God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And then the similar phrase occurs or expression occurs in Ephesians chapter one, uh, verse 14. In Ephesians one, verse 14, it says, referring to, well, go back again to verse 13 and 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, the praise of his glory. So there's two occasions where Paul refers to the Holy Spirit being the seal of God as a pledge, as a down payment. And what that indicates in the, the uh, Corinthians and Ephesians passage is that the seal of God is basically God's down payment or deposit, depending on your translation, saying it's God's stamp, it's God's mark upon his saying, these people are owned by me. And the idea of that is the words, in, actually an economic term here, the word for pledge or deposit in, in Ephesians in particular, it's an economic term. And the idea of that economic term is to say, I'm going to give you this as a pledge, as a promise that I'm going to come back and pay in full. Now, we might think of like a down payment or something like that in our modern uh, um, economy. It's not quite the same. The idea, you know, you give a down payment and then you're going to come back and pay in full later on. The problem with the down payment in an American context or the Western context is I can decide, you know what, I don't want it after all, give me my money back. So we, we, can, we can get out of it if it's just simply a down payment or deposit and I haven't signed the contract yet. But in the ancient world, this word Araban means a pledge that you give and if you don't come back and pay in full, you get to keep the pledge. Hmm. So what's happening in Corinthians and Ephesians idea is that God's saying, I've given you my Holy Spirit as a promise that I'm going to come back and dwell with you in fullness and in totality, and that you're going to dwell in my presence, no more death, no more, you know, all that stuff that we re read about. And if I don't come back and fulfill my promise, you get to keep the Holy Spirit, which obviously is the presence of God amongst us anyways, right? You know, the, the, obviously God's not going to break his promise, but that's, I think that's the context of what's happening in Corinthians and Ephesians. And so I think John's using that same understanding then to say, it's a sign of ownership upon God's people in the name of the Holy Spirit. And we referenced before la uh, last week, and we won't get into it tonight, but Revelation chapter 13 and chapter 14, I think then contrast the seal of God with the mark of the beast. And that's certainly what happens at the end of 13 and the beginning of 14, as we mentioned last time. And the mark of the beast is a sign of ownership. Who, who are you owned by? And again, one last thought here, Vinny, and that is don't take these, or maybe I have two more comments, but that's just a, one last comment, a preacher's way of saying I'm getting close to finishing, but I'm not sure when I'm going to be done. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, and now I just lost my train of thought. Uh, 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 I, I totally lost my train of thought. Um, You're talking about marks of the beast uh, yes. and ownership. And one last oh, thought. Oh, I don't know what I was going to say. <laughs> we shouldn't think of the mark of the beast as like, oh, you got this mark and therefore you can never be saved. Mm. Um, that's a that's a popular Hal Lindsayist way of reading the book of Revelation because it says if you have the mark of the beast you're thrown in the lake of fire therefore you know the idea don't witness to the people that have the mark of the beast only witness to those that don't have it you know there's there's the Christians who don't have it there's the non-Christians who do have it and then there's the non-Christians that don't have it it's like really Seriously? you know the idea is that we all 
before we came to faith in Christ, had the mark of the beast because it's who we give our allegiance to as Nelson Crable's great book, Apocalypse and Allegiance. To whom do you give your allegiance to? All right, that was my last thought, but then I have an add-on for my other last thought. And that is 2 Timothy 2, verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. Mm. Now, can I add one more thought? No, but I can. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Well, it was just... Going back to your previous second to last final thought. <laughs> okay. <yeah. laughs> uh, you said everyone is born, everyone prior to coming into the kingdom of God, it, you know, has the mark of the beast. I mean, this is um, uh, Colossians 1, 13, mm-hmm. I want to say, where we've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness yeah, into right. the kingdom yeah, of yeah, his yeah, beloved yeah. son. Like yeah. everyone is in that kingdom of darkness yes. uh, and, and praise God for being delivered into this kingdom of, of Jesus. And we would say that's just Paul's way of, it's talking about what John is talking about here. You either have, you're, you either carry the mark of the beast or you're uh, sealed by the spirit. It's the same idea, just using different kinds of metaphors in different language. Yeah. yeah. There'd be a little bit, and I'm not, we're not going to get into it at all, um, of maybe wanting to nuance the Colossians one passage a little bit, because mm-hmm. does Paul mean to include ethnic Israelites who are under the covenant? Who Got are being it. delivered from the domain of darkness, or is uh-huh. he only referring to the Gentile believers who've been mm-hmm. delivered from the domain of darkness? We might want to say, well, anybody that doesn't have faith in Jesus was, you know, but we would nuance that a little bit. So, but nonetheless. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. So my one last third last thought. Your your post, post, post script. Yeah, yeah. Which and by the way, and if you're preaching, you don't get the opportunity to interrupt me. Yeah, that's so, true. Right, right. Yeah. So, as much preacher, as everyone would want to. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Are you done? You're like, how long, oh Lord? Right? Yeah. That's what the congregation should be saying, right? That's how hilarious. long, oh Lord? Yeah. Uh, but um, I think the idea of the seal of God is that it answers the question that was that was or the statement in, in chapter three, verse ten, that he was he's going to keep you from the hour of testing, and I, we discussed that. And I, the way to translate that, the way to understand that, is to keep you through the hour of testing. The phrase to keep from only occurs in two places, Revelation 3.10, to keep you from the hour of testing. And then in John 17.15, Father, I pray that you may keep them from the evil one. Hmm. And that idea of keep them through the midst of the testing of the evil one. And so the way that we are to endure, again, the reason why I bring that up is because John's saying the seven messages told the church in Philadelphia that God's going to keep you and preserve you through the hour of testing. And now we find out in the midst of the seven seals, the way that you're preserved is that God gives you his seal. And the spirit of God is the person upon whom we rely. So that not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I kind of added that in, by the way, which is actually technically like it's a fourth, like last thought, but it's an important pastoral note. The congregation uh-huh. can't leave with the intellectual. They have to leave with a, hey, by the way, here's what it means to you. And that is rely upon the Holy Spirit uh, daily. Any other I, last by thoughts? Way, I do yeah. reserve the right to have a last thought later, but at this point in time, I have no last thoughts, so we can move ahead. Are you sure? Uh, no, but go ahead. <laughs> I'll okay. let you know. Okay. So when we look at verses five through eight, John lists these 12 tribes, and he's very specific. Mm-hmm. Like he tells you the name of the tribe and he tells you how many. And I think this is you know, a reason why when, when there is yep. popular disputes on what this text means, this is one of the reasons why people say, hey, no, this is literally talking about the 12 tribes of Israel, and uh, and it tells you how many people here. So why wouldn't we understand this as being just that? Well, you've got a number of indications in the text already telling you, hey, something else is going on. The idea, I'm 
deliberating whether or not to kind of like give this big historical background of context of dispensational thinking and what they're trying to say. But I think that's just going to confuse us too much to bother chasing that, that rabbit. Uh, let's just simply answer the question that, that you've posed. And that's, and that's, will be this, that the idea that these are Jewish people who are converted in the last days, uh, 144,000 converts and only Jewish people doesn't account for the way the text is written. First off, John's assuring the people of God, as we just discussed, that he's given us his spirit so that we can endure. And the people of God at the time of John's writing included Jewish and non-Jewish believers, right? Jewish and Gentile believers. So would this be, oh, only you Jewish ones are actually sealed. Sorry, you Gentiles, you're gonna have to suffer. That doesn't make any sense. Secondly, of course, the fact that we have the number 144,000 indicated, right? That's 12 times 12. There's another indication. It's 12 and 12 just like the 24 elders in chapter four, 12 and 12 will be Old Testament and New Testament people of God or Old and New Testament saints there. And then I think the fact that you have that this is not the 12 tribes. If you look at the list of 12 tribes here, this is not the 12 tribes. In fact, there's no list in the ancient world at all, like in the Bible or in any Jewish literature prior to the time of Jesus, I think even afterwards, that has a list of the 12 tribes that corresponds to this list. This list is different. And in particular, John includes the tribe of Joseph and the tribe of Levi. So in chapter seven, I'm sorry, in verse seven, he included the, the tribe of Levi. And in verse eight, he includes the tribe of Joseph, but they're not the 12 members of the 12 tribes. Remember the 12 tribes are the, the tribes that inherit the land. And what happened was Joseph as the firstborn got a double share. So his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, each inherit the land. You'll notice that Joseph's listed, but so also is Manasseh. One of his kids is listed, but Ephraim is not listed. It's like, oh, that's, that's odd. And then, of course, Levi, the Levitical tribe, were the priestly tribe, and they were not to receive any land itself, but to live within all of the, all the 12 tribes. So in order to add Joseph and add Levi in, you got to take two tribes out. And the two tribes that are omitted are Dan and Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is synonymous in the Old Testament world with Israel being the northern tribe. So when you, know, you have Saul, David, and Solomon, and after Solomon dies, the tribes are then divided between the northern and southern kingdoms. The southern kingdom, which controls Jerusalem, is known as Judah, and it basically comprises Judah and Benjamin, maybe a little bit of Simeon in there. The northern tribes become known as Israel. So what we call Israel after the, the division of the, of the kingdoms, actually Israel only referred to the northern tribes. Well, the northern tribes capital was in Samaria and Samaria was in the tribe of Ephraim. So Ephraim becomes synonymous with Israel in the northern tribes. So it's not excluded for that reason, perhaps most likely. Secondly, the tribe of Dan was basically the northernmost tribe and because it was so far north, they never bothered getting down to Jerusalem for anything at all. They were well known for paganism and idolatry and everything and following after other gods. So Dan seems to be admitted because of its heavy association with, with idolatry. That's the best explanation we have. I don't, we don't really know why he omitted Dan and Ephraim, but that makes the most sense. Now, including Joseph and Levi in, the answer is, well, that there's no list of the 12 tribes in the ancient world that actually corresponds to that list. And the answer is, this is an apocalyptic author's way of saying hey, I want you to see something funny is going on here. I've changed the list because I don't actually have in mind the literal 12 tribes of ethnic Israel 
I have in mind something grander, more significant than that. And you need to read through that. And I think that's why 12 and 12 is the, f- the first indication. Okay. So we should not at all uh, assume, we should actually assume the opposite. This has nothing to do with ethnic Israelites. Well, you can't go that far, right? Because the answer is there are ethnic Israelites that are followers of Jesus. Okay. Right? So sure, they're ethnic It's not ethnic Israelites exclusively. Okay. So we right? could say... Uh, Paul, Matthew, uh, Mary. John, James, Mary, Mary, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like these people. Lydia, are, all, all, yeah. yeah. Okay. They're, they're part of the 144,000. And so all God's people are. Hey, everyone. We want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to determinedtruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. So now that raises the question then, well, why this number and why are they numbered and, and, and the significance of this number? Well, the first significance of the number, obviously, is it's 12 times 12. So there's your indication that it's the Old Testament and New Testament people of God being combined into one. There's some debate as to why it's 1,000 times 144, you know, and there's there's two ways of going with this. One is that 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10. And, and again, we have to be careful here, right? Because we're not certain why John chose this number. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's pretty apparent and we can say, why hey, this makes the most sense and this seems to fit. One option is it's 10 times 10 times 10. And the cube, 10 times 10 times 10, an indication of the holy place, right? Because remember the, the holy of holies was a cube, 10 by 10 by 10. And that's where God dwelt. And therefore the indication, and I know Ian Paul, a friend of mine, a, a British scholar will say that the 10 times 10 times 10 indicates that the people of God as a holy sanctuary, as a holy temple. And that makes sense. I tend to think that it's simply the word, the number 1000, because in the Greek, and this will become important later on. And I think we may have mentioned this already before. But the number 1,000 is basically the highest counting number. The number 10,000 is almost always in the plural. In fact, in the New Testament, it is always in the plural. It's myriads. And myriads means 10,000s, plural, which is often used like it's millions and millions in our, you know, or billions and billions in our day. When I was a kid, it was millions and millions. Nowadays, it's billions Mm -hmm. and billions. So the idea was, if it's a thousand, it's a it's a large number, but it's a countable number. It's a finite number. It's not uncountable, and that makes sense because the next group is going to be this uncountable multitude from every nation, and they appear to contrast. But as we'll discuss in a few minutes here, they don't actually contrast. They're actually to be viewed as one. And so, a couple of things with this. I think one of the reasons why we have a problem reading this text is because of things like chapter verse divisions. And section headings. If yes. I'm reading this in my Bible, verses one through eight are kind of one section. It's the 144,000 right, right. Israel or uh, Israel sealed. And then it gives me another section heading, exactly. a great multitude from every nation. And it seems like this is this brand new section. John exactly. is just writing. He's not including chapter and verse divisions. He's not putting these section divisions in. And so these things right off the bat, while they can be helps, the translation committees put in there, these can also hinder us in terms of how we read a text because we break up the flow. 
Exactly. And in fact, as we'll discuss in more detail, he hears 144,000, but he sees a great multitude. Mm -hmm. There's another textual clue that the great multitude and the 144,000 are actually the same. But let's go now to to say, well, why is he starting off with 144,000 that appear to be ethnic Israelites from the 12 tribes? And I think the answer is what we have in this text, and this this is really beautiful, is the idea of promise and fulfillment. So we go back to Genesis, to the book of Genesis, and God makes this promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless all nations through your seed, right? Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Uh, and then Abraham and, and Sarah, you know, they kind of get a little bit older and they don't have any kids. And they're like, hey, God, you know, uh, be great, but I don't have any offspring. So in chapter 15, in the book of Genesis, verse 5, it says that God took Abraham outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. You're going to have as many descendants as the stars of the sky and the grand descendants of the seashore of this uncountable multitude. And then in chapter 17, he reiterates. And by the way, chapter 16 is the Hagar incident. Hey, you know, I don't really trust God. So let's go ahead and take mm-hmm, your slave. Mm-hmm. You know, Sarah says, take my slave and, and have a child. And so they have Ish- Ishmael. <laughs> chapter 17, God says, you know, I've made a covenant with you. And you, chapter 17, verse four says, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be a father of a multitude of nations. So what I think you have happening here is that you start off with a countable number of Israelites, the Old Testament saints, if we want to say it that way, right? That becomes an uncountable multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. It's the Mark 4 imagery of the, the smallest seed in the and all the garden seeds that grows up to become this great tree. And by the way, that Mark 4 parable of Jesus, the great tree actually is bringing up imagery from the book of Daniel, where the tree is where the birds sit on it and the birds of the nations. Mm. And so you have this starting off with a small seed, this, this, this small countable multitude, a uh, small countable number that gives birth to this uncountable multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And I think that's what you have happening here uh, in Revelation chapter seven. God's fulfilling his promise. Can I add something? Uh, this one time since you've been <laughs> good so far. Okay. Yeah. All right. So by the way, uh, one last thing. Again. Uh, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we see the same pattern. What started off as a countable multitude or countable number gave birth to an uncountable multitude. In Deuteronomy 10, this is what's described in terms of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. And it says in chapter 10, verse 22, it says, Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So there's an example like, hey, they, you went into Egypt as this countable number, but you came out of Egypt as this uncountable multitude. So we see this pattern happening in scripture. And I think that's simply what John's doing there. So, oh, can I add something else? (laughs) No. uh, Is that going to matter if I say no? (laughs) Well, I'll just edit it out. So it doesn't really, you you, go ahead and say no if it makes you feel better. Okay. Uh, Yes, go, go for it. I'm a firm (laughs) I have control. You dog. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What's also interesting is the fact that the word servant. So it says in chapter seven of the book of Revelation, let me go back to Revelation seven. Revelation chapter seven says, don't, verse three, don't harm the earth of the sea or the trees until we've sealed the bond servants of our God or the servants of our God on their foreheads. Well, again, the word servant occurs 14 times in the book of Revelation. And the word, so the ones who are sealed are the servants. And then it lists in the next verse, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. So it appears like oh, only the, the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes are the ones who are sealed, but we're told the ones who are sealed are the servants. And the word servants is used throughout the book of Revelation to apply to God's people. 
right? In chapter one, verse one, it's John was a bondservant, and obviously it, it's applied to the people of God throughout the rest of the book. And the fact that it occurs 14 times, well, probably indicates seven times two. Remember, two is the number of witness, and seven is the number of perfection or completion. My servants are the perfect witness of God's people, and certainly and includes all of God's people and not just ethnic Israelites. A few minutes ago, it might have been in one of your post, post, post scripts. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I'm confused now. But the, you had the, mentioned the preacher's prerogatives. Yeah, that's what that's it is. What, that's, that, that's, yeah, P, that's PR. P, P, yes. No, no, yeah, P, P, PR. Preacher, preacher's PP. <laughs> Uh, I, we can't call it PP. That's not going to that's, that's work. So, well, yeah. whatever. Yeah, whatever it is. Uh, is it, you, you had mentioned how there is a fulfillment happening here. And you obviously, you're talking about Genesis 12, 15, the covenantal promises to Abraham. It's interesting because it, it, in one of the ways we read this text in which we do divide up, there's the yeah. Jews over here, or there, there's Israel over here, and then there's the Gentiles over here. That is really a foreign category that the biblical writers wouldn't have thought. Because exactly. what we normally think is there's Israel, that's the Jews, right? And then there's the church, which is the Gentiles or the but Christians, you, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and but it's oftentimes thought of as the Christians are the Gentiles, yeah. Like even in, in modern times, and it's interesting because if you were to listen to a uh, Paul, he's not writing as though. Obviously, he's ministering to the Gentile world, but he's not telling them something new. He's saying, hey, join us. Join yes. the thing that I'm a part of. Be yes. family with me. Uh, it's not this other thing that you get. To, it's not the second category that you get to do. And, and that's what you just see with you know all the early Christians. They're Jews who are saying, join us, not join yes. the separate thing. And so how, how would we look at this, just looking at a biblical theology when they're, when they're having this concept of, is there Israelites and then the church or, or, right. you know, Israel and the church, they're not thinking in those two distinctions. No. They're, they're just thinking who are the people of God who are following uh, Israel's Messiah? Yeah, very good. And in fact, so I did a webinar yesterday and yesterday, as far as you and I are recording this, which will be a couple weeks from now, if you're listening to this in early October of 2023. Uh, and the webinar will be posted on uh, NEMI's YouTube page, N-E-M-E, Network of Evangelicals for the Middle East, their YouTube page. And the question was uh, Israel and the end times, and how do we, how are we, we to understand the, uh, the idea of Israel? I'm always very cautious. I don't like using the words Israel and the church because it adds like, well, okay, they're as if they're distinct things, if they're different things. The but issue popularly, that's, happened, that's the, those are the that's words that correct. are used in the popular world. Uh -huh. Exactly. And I think that's the problem. If we simply call them the people of God, because the first thing that we recognize about the Old Testament saints is that the people of God were predominantly Israelites, but not all Israelites were members of the people of God. That's the whole point mm -hmm. of the prophets, right? You guys have gone astray. You, you've, you've fallen away. And the prophets are saying, you know, come back, come back, come back. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, we could get into this debate whether all people in the church today are. The, the problem with that vernacular more, more specifically though is the fact that there are ethnic israelites jews that are members of what we call the church today mm -hmm. but that was certainly as you noted not a, the issue at the time of the new testament at all paul and the christians believed they were israelites the true israelites the fulfillment and that the fulfillment of god's covenant promises always was to eventually include the gentiles and that's exactly what's happening and that's Paul's whole point is that mm -hmm. the spirits come and it fell on the Gentiles, whether this is Peter in Acts 10 and Acts 11, or whether this is Paul writing the book of, to the church in Galatia. His answer is the Holy Spirit fell on you guys. You guys received the Holy Spirit, which probably meant they were speaking in tongues. 
before they were circumcised. Mm-hmm. And we know that they're included amongst God's people, and this, this inclusion happens there. So a couple of good verses to look at will be Romans 4, verses 11 through 13. And I can read that one if you want to, and we'll do Galatians 3, 28 and 29, okay. if, if you want to read Galatians 3, 28 and 29. So uh, Romans 4, 11 through 13, it says, referring to Abraham, it says, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he, being Abraham, might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And Abraham might also be the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but meaning they're Jewish, uh, ethnic Israelites, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while he was uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not to the law, but to the righteousness of faith. Now, Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Yeah. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. All right, in the second section of chapter seven, it's nine through 17. And this is the section uh, describing the great multitude from every nation. Mm-hmm. I remember I didn't know what to do with this passage when I years ago when I was trying to figure this out. And I remember having a car ride talk with you about it. Mm. Uh, and your thing was, hey, this this great multitude is the same group as the 144,000 people. And I, this just kind of blew my mind. And it was one of those things where I had read so much, even from Christian scholars. Mm. And I was reading more popular stuff and none of it just made sense. And right okay. when you said it, I'm like, this becomes kind of Occam's razor where it's like, this is the simplest explanation that just totally makes sense. <laughs> uh, but uh, do you want to explain how, why you would think that the great multitude is this 144,000? Uh, well, the first thing then is because John's promising them the 144,000 that God seals you. He's protected you. And if you rely upon the spirit, you can endure, you can overcome. And then we get a glimpse of the future. And that future is, and see, this is what it's going to look like when we've overcome. So, mm. so you have this looking at the present and looking at the future. I think that makes sense of the context. But the first off, the great multitude are from every nation. And if they're from every nation, then it includes Israel. So you can't, you can't exclude Israel from the, from the great multitude. Because it doesn't say from every other nation. Yeah, exactly. From every nation. It's just saying all the nations. Uh, Every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues. And that fourfold list is where we're referring to all peoples from uh, all of of humanity, or or people from all of humanity, at least. The next thing to note, of course, is that verses 13 and 14 are clearly this future. It says, one of the elders said to me, well, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? Now, mind you, this is just a prophetic way of writing. It's not like the elder doesn't know. The elders sparking a conversation and getting John to admit, like, I have no idea. You tell me, right? You know, God will, God will say to Adam and Eve, where are you? Like, God doesn't know where Adam and Eve are. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we're hiding because we're naked. Like, oh, I didn't know that. No, that's not what's happening. It's sparking a conversation. So the question is, uh, who are these who are clothed in white robes and where they come from? And John says, well, I, I said to the, the, the elder, my, my Lord, you know, verse 14. And he said to me, these are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. And they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And then it goes on to describe the glorious presence of God, of the people of God in the midst of God's presence. 
verses 15 through 18. I know you read it earlier, but it's worth reading again. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them, and they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore. Neither will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, because the lamb and the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So I think John's done then is he's taken this countable multitude, countable number from the tribes of Israel and says, and look what it's going to become if you remain faithful and look what's going to happen. And the answer is, ah, we're going to overcome and we're going to be before the throne of God and the lamb will be our shepherd and he'll guide us to the springs of the water of life. And the sun won't be down on us any longer, which by the way, in the ancient world, most workers were working out in the the sun. Yeah, we won't, the sun won't be down on us and, and we won't have any hunger or thirst, and the lamb will shelter us. And by the way, you've got to memorize Revelation 7, 15 through 18. You know, when you're going through times of trials or, or whatever, just go back, like, you know, go to the Psalms, but go to Revelation 7, uh, verses 15 through 18 and meditate on it. So, and the other thing to note here is that, uh, by the way, one more thing, and, and that is the description in chapter 7, verses 15 through 18 corresponds to Revelation 21 and 22. In other words, another way we know that John's leaping forward in the narrative is that the description of the great multitude being before the throne of God is full of language that's used in Revelation 21 and 22 to describe the new Jerusalem. So this is describing God's people having come through the tribulation uh, and the suffering. We've talked before, even in the series, about yeah. the idea of tribulation. Uh, and so this word is coming up now. Can we just remind folks what we mean by tribulation? Yeah, that, that's fine. And I mean, I'm sure you could do a, a great job also. And I think what we, the idea of the tribulation throughout the New Testament, and I wrote about this in my book, Understanding the New Testament in the End Times, it refers to this time during which God's people suffer, in which they're called to endure for faithful, loving, sacrificial, persevering witnesses of Jesus, and that they suffer do you want to add something? Yeah. So like we could differentiate tr- uh, tribulation from just trials of this world. Yeah. Uh, and so for instance, uh, and so we'll wrap up today and we'll actually talk about the Israel-Palestine issue, which in yeah, real time, yeah. this just has happened in the last couple of days. Uh, right. So by the time the episode airs, it will be a few weeks old. Who knows what's happening? What we're seeing in there is awful on, yes. on, you know, from multiple levels. Uh, yes. it's, you know, and we'll, we'll talk about that, but we would say that's not tribulation. That's awful, horrendous atrocities that people are suffering as a result of living in a fallen world. Mm-hmm. But we would say that's not fitting the biblical criteria for tribulation and that this it, it, people are not suffering as a result of allegiance to Jesus. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And again, we're going to discuss it at the end, but we're already, our hearts are heavy and grieving yeah. deeply. And we don't want to minimize that. Happening. Like no, even right. saying yeah, that we're, yeah, we're not yeah. minimizing what they're going through. It's just a different category. Yeah. Yeah. It's the wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilence and mm-hmm. earthquakes that just always happen and transpire. But now what John's talking about, what the Bible's talking about when it uses tribulation, it's what God's people suffer because they're God's people and they're faithful in allegiance to Christ and not in allegiance to the nations. And therefore the nations persecute them. The nations oppose uh, economic consequence upon them. And that's why Jesus says, why do you worry about food? Why do you worry about clothing? But seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to how John uses the idea of hearing and seeing. Okay. Yeah. So uh, just to re- I, it's an important point to reiterate. So th- it just confirms that, again, that the 144,000, the great multitude are indeed the same group. John heard in chapter five that the lion from the tribe of Jude had overcome 
But then he looked and he saw the lamb that was slain. And we know that the lion and the lamb are actually the same. There's, there's just no question about that. And so that, that is an illustration or an example of John's use of hearing and seeing. So now here, John hears 144,000 each of the tribes of Israel, and he sees a great multitude. And there's an under indication that they're the same group. Uh, sometimes the 144,000 are numbered because they're representing holy warriors, because uh, you would take a census maybe in the Old Testament, and that's yeah. why you would count things. Is that something that we would uh, ascribe here? Yes, and it's a very important theme, but it's also one that we need to be sure we, we're careful about. In the book, of, So the book of Revelation you can describe as a warfare text. There's a war. The war is the nations who are empowered by the dragon waging war against Christ and against God's people. That warfare language, however, in the church is often abused. So I just want to make a little mm -hmm. you know, caveat here at the beginning. It's often abused. You know, we're at war because they took the Ten Commandments out of our, our schools or out of our courtrooms or, or like that's not the war. That's not what it means. Furthermore, the way the war is waged is what's critical. And that is the nations use power, military might and crosses to nail you on them. But the people of God and Jesus go on said crosses and suffer as the way they wage war in, in response. And we wage war by love. We wage war by loving our neighbor, loving our enemies, and even laying down our lives for them. Thus, you see in Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus returns, and there's a big debate on this a little bit, and this is not a debate amongst like the wild, fanciful, you know, Hal Lindsey uh, group. It's, it's a debate that's within the scholarly community. In Revelation 19, it says that Jesus, at his return, it says his garments have been stained with blood. And the debate is, is the blood the blood of his enemies? Because he's coming back to trample his mm. enemies. Or is it his own blood? And I'll, I'll argue in much more detail then that it's his own blood because Revelation 19 says as he's coming down, his garments are already stained in blood. He hasn't waged war yet, let alone the fact that Jesus doesn't wage war with violence. His only weapon is a sword that's out of his mouth and it's his words. Uh, and of course, you know, there, it, it's a violent description, but I don't think actually it's actual violence. So the first thing I'd say is, yes, God's people are numbered here because they are holy warriors. The only other instance in which God's people are counted, in which it's a good thing, they're, they're counted on two occasions. On one occasion, the book of Numbers, chapter one, the people are counted because you take a census to count the number of men in this, in the, amongst your people to know how strong your army is before you go wage war. The second occurrence, by the way, occurs in 2 Samuel chapter 24, where David takes a census. And it's like, David, if I send you to war, you don't need to count your soldiers. Mm. Just, and so David takes a census, and it's a sign of a lack of faith in God. So here, of course, it's not, well, numbering to show the strength of the army. It's, just, it's just simply numbering because they are indeed holy warriors. And now, the fact that they're holy warriors actually corresponds, again, to the fact that the great multitude are also the 144,000, because the great multitude are also holy warriors. In chapter 7, uh, verse 9, it says, the great, I saw a great multitude you know, from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And they're standing before the throne, before the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes, which means they've come out of the Great Tribulation. And palm branches were in their hands. Mm -hmm. And palm branches is what you wave after you come back from a military victory. So they also are holy warriors. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts on uh, Revelation 7? All right, so I think we've, we've hit this pretty well. We're going to move into the seventh seal uh, and the seven trumpets next week. And it'll probably take us a couple weeks to get to the seven trumpets uh, as we move to the narrative of, of John's story. Again, just to reiterate, God's people are being sealed here prior to the opening of the seven seals in terms of 
narrative time because God wants us to be reminded that we are protected by God so that we can endure. So as we go through our life and cry out, how long, O Lord? Uh, the answer is, I've given you my spirit, trust, have faith, and, and rely upon the power of the spirit. That's through prayer, fellowship, the study of the word, you know, giving, serving, uh, all those things that we do uh, as daily surrender uh, to Christ. The Lord's Prayer, of course, is a significant part of that. Um, the next thing I would simply say is, as I iterated before, and that is memorize Revelation 7 verses 13, 14 through 17 or 15 through 17, however far you want to go. These are the ones in verse 14 that have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes. They've made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on his throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore. Neither will the sun beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, because the lamb and the son of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. If I added one more thing to that, and that is in Revelation 22, when it describes this God's people dwelling in God's presence, it says, and they will see his face. Mm. Oh, wow. The glorious presence of God that Moses was not even allowed to see fully. Right, mm -hmm. he like hey, get in the back of that cave, and I'll pass by, and you can see my back. And then he comes walking down the hill, and his, his face is glowing so much. Like hey, man, Moses, can you cover yourself? We will see God's face. The full glorious presence of God will be dwelling within, and I think that is the sign of hope that we can endure. And our brothers and sisters in Christ that are struggling a whole lot more than we are in the West can endure. I think I think that's important. So yeah, but let's finish up, Vinny, by you know just um, I almost feel like bad talking about revelation seven and are, are the ethnic jews or, or whatever because mm -hmm, it just brings mm -hmm. to mind what, what's going on in israel um, and palestine so let's go ahead you have any thoughts on on the recent events of hamas's terror attacks uh, on israel well, yeah, like i said we're we're recording this on wednesday morning this did this start over the weekend or it's saturday almost, morning yeah saturday yeah, morning. yeah yeah so i mean we're like five days into this uh it's like as of this morning you start hearing official news of things like hamas you find babies like being beheaded by Hamas, oh, Israeli wow. babies. It's a, like, like this is the type of stuff that like, as I was driving my son to school and driving him home and I had the news on hearing this sort of thing. So like you're sitting in this, it's such a difficult situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, it's funny because everyone seems like, especially on social media, they're a, uh, they all have a PhD in Middle Eastern foreign relations. Uh, everyone's it's oh, just everyone's oh. quick to jumping into on a Facebook. Conclusion. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I, I would also have a PhD in how to not be graceful. Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, yeah. How to be a jerk one hundred and one. They passed that class with flying flying colors. Yes, and and from the Christian community, you have a lot of uh, jerks for Jesus stickers, <laughs> bumper stickers <laughs> on cars. Uh, They'll but, know you're my disciples if you blast them well enough on social media, exactly. and remind them of, that they're damned and going to hell. Exactly. Yeah. I, it was so something I, Jesus, he said something like that. I can't remember exactly. It, what Jesus is a paraphrase. It's a rough paraphrase. Yeah, it's a rough paraphrase. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think the first thing is just like we have this need to have to respond and have to give yeah, an opinion yeah, yeah, and have yeah, to whatever. Yeah. And, and we have to figure out who's right and who's wrong and everything's binary and you mm -hmm. want to support the right guy and, and all right. this kind of stuff. And, and then you want to condemn people who are uh, supporting, you know, obviously Israel's the good guy Palestine's the bad guy. Right, um, right. And we just make these so simple. And it's like, man, why do we have to, why do we actually have to jump to a conclusion right away? Right. Why can't we just sit and grieve and hurt for exactly. this? Yeah, let's just we're not, for a little bit. Yeah, thank, we're thank not you, the ones you. who are making these decisions anyway. I don't have to chime in on this. My voice literally matters none. 
Why can't I just sit mm. in this and view people as being made in the image of God and grieve for the pain? Even even this, like it's horrible to think of a, a child. Like I have a six-year-old son. Yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. horrible to think of a little kid being beheaded. And that's it, like from a shock value, that's disgusting. But yeah. why is that any worse than a 55-year-old man having yeah. a, 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 a missile end up in his uh, living room and blow him up? These are all human beings, all equally right. made in the image of God. And this is where it's like, why can't we just sit in the awfulness of this? Why do we have to run to defend and pick sides? We we could condemn. We could rightfully condemn who's doing evil. But right. it's not as simple as then saying right. there's good guy and bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. I'll push back on one thing that you said, though. I first want to resonate with the fact that, yeah, blessed are those who mourn, mm -hmm. right? Weep with those who weep, as Ecclesiastes would say, right? Grieve with those who are grieving. And we need to stop and go, this is what happens when we rule without God as king, mm -hmm. right? When Adam and Eve said, you know what, we're going to make our own decisions on right and wrong, and we're going to judge on how to rule ourselves, instead of ruling and subduing the earth with God being the source of wisdom. The problem, the conflict becomes then war and devastation and destruction, and, and we need to grieve. And so there's no question at all, Hamas is evil mm -hmm. and terrorists, and I've, I haven't heard the news that you just told me about this yet, yet today. Yeah. Um, I got a call here in just a few minutes with another, I'm sure I'll get some more of a briefing on, on some, some of the things that are going on there. But the next thing is we actually can do something about it. And this is why one of the reasons why I've been so involved in this issue for the past 14 or more years. And that's because we are involved in this, the United States and the Christian and especially evangelical churches support of Israel as the good guys, because they're mm -hmm, God's mm -hmm. chosen, you know, that whole mantra has actually pushed American foreign policy. And so we're in the middle of this. And when we're in the middle of this, what we need to realize is our voice has been heard by our congressional members and our presidential members. And therefore, we can actually have a, a voice as, a, as members of a democratic society to, to push for peace, uh, to push for justice. So uh, I'm sure this will come up on my call here in just a few minutes that um, I wrote a blog about this on Saturday, responding to President Biden's uh, initial speech. And at the time I wrote the blog, I didn't know a whole lot of the details, right? But I was just responding to what Biden, what President Biden had to say. And then, um, and that came out on, I think, Sunday of October 8th or 9th or whatever it was, mm -hmm, uh, 2020, mm -hmm. 2020, 2023. Right. Well, then we found out that Russell Moore wrote a, uh, an editorial in Christianity mm -hmm. Today, and I have the utmost respect for Russell yep. Moore. I think he's phenomenal, been a great spokesperson, even when it's cost him his job. He has spoken out, uh, and I, I really respect him. I may not agree with everything he says, but I've watched his ministry and the things he's done from afar, and I've had great respect for him. But uh, his voice was basically, you know, we need to stand with Israel uh, as they respond with force. And I thought, oh, no, you know, we need to stand with Israel because they've suffered great tragedy, and we need to weep in, with those who weep. But the reality is they're going to respond with great force, and that's not good either. You know, all who, who live by the sword will die by the sword, as Jesus says in mm -hmm. Matthew 26. And the answer and the solution is we need to be advocating for peace and for justice and not for reprisal. Now, I'm not saying that a nation doesn't have the right to respond and to defend itself. I, I get that. But the, the issue is far more complicated than that. You know, this, this conflict goes 75 years and, and more. And so, yeah, Israel has a right to respond. I, I, we get that. But wouldn't it be better if we force these people to sit down at a table 
and negotiate a peaceful resolution for everyone's sake. Because when Israel responds with force, now guess what's going to happen to babies in Gaza? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. The 2.2 million people in Gaza, 50% of them are children because yep. the population, I think the average age in, in Gaza is 16 because it, it's so bad. And so, you know, this devastation is going to, going to be, going to be bad now on the, on the other side. So, and I, again, I was on a call yesterday with a leader that went in a group and he was in, he was in Jerusalem and uh, a Jewish leader and he's hunkering down in, in, uh, in bunkers. And so this is, this is just horrible. So yeah, we, we grieve with them. And it just reminds us that our theology does have impact uh, on, on, uh, on issues of justice. And if we stop and, as you said, and have this binary thinking, there's a good side and there's a bad side. Um, and, oh, the United States must be the good side. And, you know, it's like, no, it's, it's way more complex than this. And the devil works in far more insidious ways. And we'll get to unpacking more of that as we get to thir- chapter 13 in the book of Revelation yeah. and, and finishing, finishing our study. But yeah, so. I, I'm curious yeah. your thoughts on something because we have, uh, I guess, obviously Israel is, there's horrible things happening in Israel by Hamas. Okay. Yeah. So that's like not a question, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what you what you tend to see, especially on social media, is uh, you also have a lot of pro-Palestinian support where you have yeah, yeah. there's rallies and whatnot going out there. Should we take people uh, as being pro-Palestinian the same thing as being pro-Hamas? No. And, and, and there might right. be some people right. who are just anti-Semitic and, and that might be the sentiment of some people. Right. But but the, what I'm seeing, there's a lot of pushback to anyone who's supporting Palestine. Right. And, and what I'm... It, my first reaction is the Palestinian people, they're the ones who are being infiltrated by Hamas as well. They're the ones who are being used as human shields by Hamas. So like Hamas will uh, create these issues and then retreat into the uh, homes of Palestinians. So that, like Palestinians are becoming collateral damage in many ways. Uh, it, so is this a matter of, and this is just somewhat, it's, it's my ignorance, but just yeah, thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, in terms of how I'm viewing it, I'm not seeing it as Palestine is bad. Israel is good. We need to stand with Israel. It's like, yeah, we need to stand with Jewish people and we need to stand with Palestinian people because Hamas is making a mess here. And so to say I support Palestine doesn't necessarily mean I'm supporting Hamas. It means I'm supporting Palestinians who are also having to engage in this awful experience in their life. Yeah. So the so the answer is really complex, and I and I mm-hmm. hope I can do justice to the answer to your question. We stand with all people, especially the oppressed, mm-hmm. and we take those who are in power and call them to do justice. That's what we're doing, right? And the oppressed right now are the people in Israel who are suffering. Uh, because of the recent attacks, hundreds, if not more than a thousand now have been killed amongst the Isra- Israelis. People have been kidnapped and the others are living in fear and continue to live in fear of more bombs coming over the wall. So we stand with them. We also stand with the Palestinians because A, the Palestinians continue to be st- uh, stepped on and oppressed by the Israeli blockade of Gaza uh, and the human rights violations that occur as a result of that, as well as the Palestinians in the West Bank who are living under the oppression of, of occupation and the incursion of settlers and the incursion mm. of uh, human rights violations of kids being thrown in prisons in the middle of the night, um, abuse, restriction of movements and lack of water and lack of uh, access to, to all kinds of things. So that's one we're standing with them. Mm-hmm. Um, the people, there are Palestinians who are standing with Hamas because you kind of have two governing organizations in, in amongst the Palestinians, right? Hamas is the governing organization in the Gaza Strip. They were elected. Mm-hmm. Okay. They were elected by, uh, by, by, by the Gazans. And then you have the Palestinian Authority that basically runs the West Bank. The Palestinian Authority has done nothing. They've been corrupt. The Palestinians are done with them. Many Palestinians in the West Bank say, you know what? 
let's just become part of Israel and give us second rate citizenship in Israel. We'll be better off than we would be under the Palestinian mm. authority. So many Palestinians like we're fine. If you want to make us part of Israel, just give us Israeli citizenship as Arab citizens of Israel. And we'll be second class citizens because the Palestinian authority has not stood up against Israel's oppression of the Palestinians. And so the, Hamas is a Hamas is going, well, we'll stand up for you. And here's what we're going to do. And obviously they're a terrorist organization who wants to annihilate Israel and wipe it off the face of the map. So some Palestinians are looking and going, well, at least somebody's standing up for us. But most of them are not. Most of them are mm -hmm. going, no, Hamas is not good. This is a problem. And what they just did does not rep represent Islam, does not represent the Jewish, uh, the, uh, um, the Christian Arabs. It does not represent the sentiment of Palestinians at all. They're peaceful people. They want to live in peace with Jews and Israelis and have before 1948, and they can and, and, and would love to do, to do so now. What happened really briefly here, we got to get going, but is Hamas was elected because basically they went around, when, when they opened up the, uh, the Gaza and Israel withdrew and said, okay, we're going to let you guys self-govern, which is not really true. They didn't really let them self-govern because they have a blockade and there's uh, oil and gas and electricity and water, all that supplied by Israel. Okay. But Gaza is going to have this self-governing government. Well, Hamas went around and, and started doing things for the people, started showing up at hospitals and started educating children and started providing mm -hmm. programs. Well, you're going to vote for the people who are doing things for you, who are caring for you. Sure. And they voted for Hamas. And then it, it turned out Hamas also had this platform of, we want to annihilate Israel. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not why most Gazans voted for Hamas. They voted for Hamas because no one was looking for looking after basic us needs. Yeah, yeah our basic needs. And so mm -hmm. uh, it, it's very convoluted and very, very complex. But and I almost hesitate to bring this up. But the narrative that the why did Hamas do this? It be, because they're evil terrorist organization that's bent on the destruction of Israel. Well, there's truth in that, but it covers up or it overlooks the fact that they did that because they're so desperate if you did a Google search on the world's largest outdoor prison, you know, the mm -hmm. Gaza Strip comes up. So something motivates people to have an act of desperation that says, we're going to chop baby's heads off. We're going to do this because this is our only, we're going to die too. We know it. We, we know Israel's going to blow us up. They're going to come and, and we're going to die, but I'm going to at least take them out too. That's evil and horrible, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. something drives you to do that. And I think that's where we realize, hey, we have to get, the people of these nations, especially the United States government, has it had authority over Israel. It no, you know, we give Israel $3.8 billion in military aid. We we have a voice in Israel and we can help, we can tell them, hey, you guys get to the table and negotiate peace with uh, and, and make this happen. The powers that be in the Palestinian Authority and the powers that be uh in Hamas, certainly, and the powers that be in Israel don't want it to happen. So mm. all right. Yeah. Hey. Complex problems usually have complex solutions, and this is definitely a complex problem. <laughs> yeah, and God's people just weep and pray for peace and act for yep. peace. So, yep. okay. So, hopefully, the next time we record, we'll have a, a more positive update when it comes to that. And I'm sure yeah, we'll come really. up because it's relevant to this yeah. discussion. But, um, yeah, in the meantime, uh, keep reading through Revelation. We're going to, like we said, we, we're through seven chapters now. We'll be in the chapter eight next time. Yep. Uh, eight and nine. Eight and nine. Eight and nine. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And that's what you say now. Yeah. Well, no, we won't do them both in, in one day, but we're going to okay. look at them both as one and large entity. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Cool. Right. Awesome. That's going to happen next time. We'll see you guys later. All right. Take care, ma'am. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. 
please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.